You are freer than you think. It's like the ultimate form of freedom. You expound upon that freedom to develop on this planet. True freedom comes from within. It's the ability. Thinking to myself, I can help you or I can destroy you. Man is a two-time felon. I work really hard and I've been, a, I've been a life learner. When things are feeling tough, let yourself be surprised. The world favors risk-taking. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Freedom Pact. There are literally billions of lives at stake. This is the science that could save them. Now, I know that is a huge statement, but that is what we're talking about today. So welcome back to the Freedom Pact podcast. I'm your host today, Lewis, and I am joined by Dr. Andrew Steele. Uh, Andrew has written the book, Ageless, The New Science of Getting Older Without Getting Old. So today on the podcast and in his work in general, Andrew explains what is happening as we age and offers practical ways we can help slow down the aging process. He reveals how understanding the scientific implications of aging could lead to the greatest discovery in the history of medicine, one that has the potential to improve billions of lives, save trillions of dollars, and transform the human condition. Yes, today's episode is on longevity and anti-aging, a topic I know that you guys are very interested in. Of course, we've done episodes in the past with Dr. David Sinclair, Dr. Gil Blander on this subject. We're bringing you another one today in the form of Andrew Steele. Andrew, welcome to the Freedom Pack podcast. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. So we're here today to talk about your new book, Ageless. And as one of my favorite covers of any book I've I've had, I think it's such a clean cover, so so subtle. But talk to me a little bit about this guy here and why he's so significant. It's actually a she, if we're being technical, because wow. that is uh, it's supposed to represent Harriet the tortoise, which is um, mm. a Galapagos tortoise who was brought back from um, the Galapagos Islands, obviously. P- supposedly by Charles Darwin, there's a bit of contention around exactly what the history was. But this tortoise, she lived to 175, probably. We can't be sure of exactly what her age was because... Um, Obviously, it's very hard to age a tortoise, and they didn't bring her back from a, from an egg. They brought her back at you know when she was probably already about twenty or thirty years old. But the thing that's really exciting about tortoises isn't just that they live a very long time; it's that they are what's called negligibly senescent. And what that means is that their risk of death doesn't change as a function of how old they are. So if you think about humans, our risk of death doubles about every seven or eight years. And yet a tortoise, its risk of death stays the same throughout its adult life. And so that means in a sort of statistical sense, we can imagine that tortoises don't age. And I think that this negligible senescence is something that should probably be an aspiration for us humans too. Hmm. It's interesting because for something like a tortoise, it lives a very slow paced life, almost the opposite to the life that we're living at the moment. We live in such a fast paced world. Yeah, and I think there's, you know, when you look at tortoises, you could imagine the reason that they live such a long time is just because they do live so slowly. But the fact is, because their risk of death stays constant, it's not as though they're just aging at a slower rate than us. They literally aren't aging at all. So, you know, because you can imagine the the longest lived vertebrates, the longest lived animal with a backbone, is something called a Greenland shark, we think. And these sharks, they can swim around in the icy cold waters of the Arctic for about 400 years, maybe longer. That's just the oldest one we happen to have found. 
Um, but it could just be because their metabolism is working really slowly. They're obviously cold blooded so that, you know, everything's just happening at a reduced pace. Maybe they're just experiencing a similar life course to us, but just drawn out over such a long time because everything's happening so slowly. But what's more exciting about things like tortoises and various other animals is that because their risk of death doesn't change with time, it's not just that everything's happening more slowly. It's actually that they aren't aging. There's a stat you give in the book um, that 150,000 people die every day, about 100,000 of them being due to aging. So when we look at that statistic and arguably what the book is about is aging being a disease. Now, most people, maybe myself, until I stumbled onto the work of David Sinclair, I never thought about it as a disease. Why do you define aging as a disease and not just something that is natural? It's an interesting question. Actually, I don't always define aging as a disease per se. Um, there's a bit of an argument in the biogerontology community about whether we should call it a disease or not. And it's, it's in some ways a bit of a technical argument, in other ways a bit of a philosophical one. So from a philosophical standpoint, the reason that I don't like to call aging a disease is that I, I'm not sure it's, um, it's very nice basically to tell anyone over the age of 50 that they've got a disease, they've got something that's inherently wrong with them. What I like to think about it as is an increasing risk of all these other diseases things like cancer, things like heart disease, things like dementia. These are all essentially caused by the aging process. And so um, some some biogerontologists, so biologists interested in the study of aging would call that a disease syndrome. I still don't think that sounds particularly pleasant to tell, you know, to tell everyone over 50, they've got a disease syndrome. But whatever it is that you call it, that's fundamentally what's going on inside your biology. And, um, you know, the argument from the sort of people who would want to call it a disease, um, there are various premature aging conditions. They're called... Um, I've suddenly forgotten the word. Word. They're called. Da, 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 da. I've completely lost it. What is it? <laughs> I think I must be going senile myself. At the, you know, in my mid thirties. Um, but there, there are these premature aging conditions. Progeria. That's what they're called. So pro meaning uh, advanced and geria from the from the word for aging. And uh, people who suffer from these progerias, what happens to them is they basically age. Um, there's, there's one variety of it where you basically age rapidly over about 10 or 15 or 20 years. You can die. I think the average age is 13 of a heart condition. And there are others. There's, a, there's one called Werner syndrome, which basically you, you die in about your 50s of probably cancer or a heart attack as well. But what's striking about these conditions is that you get wrinkles, you get gray hair, you get a lot of the external signs of aging happening at this incredibly accelerated rate. And obviously, because that's happening prematurely, we do call it a disease. Um, so it's an interesting question. You know, why do we not call it a disease when it happens at the natural time? It's interesting. I mean, the last two books I read, so the latest being yours, which the subtitle is The New Science of Getting Older Without Getting Old. And the book I read before that was by Seneca the Younger called On the Shortness of Life. Two very different uh, <laughs> approaches. But it makes me wonder with all like, I'm obviously, I'm big into Stoic philosophy and a lot of it is accepting mortality and accepting that life you know, life is short, but, and it's something we're all taught from a young age. Why have we as humans just accept, accepted aging as something that happens? Why have we never really, you know, looked at approaches like yours? Why are your approaches so innovative? Surely this is something we should have looked at before. It's really remarkable. And I don't think I can fully understand the reason from a sort of psychological point of view. I think partly it's just that it has been such a feature of the human condition for such an extended period of time that it's quite difficult to imagine a world in which we don't age. And because it's, you know, it's not just humans either. 
if we look at our pets, if we look at the farm animals that we've always kept, you know, throughout our, our history, these creatures all age in a surprisingly similar way to us. They often do so more quickly. You know, our cats and dogs obviously die much sooner than we do, but they lose their sight, they lose their hearing, they get frail. You know, they eventually get cancer and heart conditions as we now understand them in the modern world. So it really does just seem like this inevitable fact of life. And you can totally imagine back in ancient Greece with no idea of the science, you know, people were looking for fountains of youth and there were these myths around them and there were, you know, some completely ridiculous ideas that have been tried throughout the centuries. I think the most disgusting and bizarre of which was sowing monkey testicles to people in an attempt to slow down their age, which was at some point popularized in the early 20th century. But aside from these sort of quacks peddling these bizarre elixirs and treatments, most people just have to come to terms with the fact that this is something that's going to happen to them. And so, you know, it is you know being literally stoic to think, well, this is an inevitability. I'm just going to have to steel myself to that fact. And I think the, the unique thing about our current period in history and the history of medicine and the history of biology is that we're finally at a point where we can think about intervening in the aging process. We've finally got an understanding of why it is we age. We've got lots of different ways in the lab of slowing and reversing aging in cells and in animals. And we're just starting to do that in people. So I think this is, you know, that's why in the past it probably would have made sense to just make our peace with it and come to terms with it. Whereas now I think trying to think about it as a medical problem and something that we can treat and something we can do something about makes a lot more sense. What would you say to those people who might be listening right now and they're thinking, Andrew, Lewis, aging is, is something that's natural. It makes the world go round. You know, we need it to keep pollution down. It's not normal to try and extend your life. Just enjoy it for what it is. What would you say to those people? I'd say that um, that's an example of what I, I think in philosophy is called the naturalistic fallacy, which is this idea that because something's natural, it has to be good. And actually, you know, you could have made very similar arguments about some of the biggest killers in the past. If you look back at the, you know, the 19th century, for example, huge numbers of people were felled by infectious diseases, tuberculosis, smallpox, these horrible ways to die. And you could imagine being back then people making exactly the same arguments when life expectancy was 30 or 40 years old. And just saying, well, you know, that's just the amount of time you get. That's your allotted amount of life. And, you know, this huge amount of suffering, you know, these horrible diseases, they're just nature. They're natural. We shouldn't do anything about them. The fact is we're now in a fortunate position where most infectious diseases, you know, save the uh, obvious pandemic that's raging at the moment as we record this, we've managed to put back in their box. We've got antibiotics, we've got vaccines, we've got things that have dramatically extended our lifespans. So, you know, just to um, looking back in the 18th, 19th century, sorry, when life expectancy was 30 or 40, life expectancy around the world today is over 70 years. So we've really pushed back all of those historical causes of death. And what we're left with now are these sort of modern causes of death, cancer, heart disease, dementia, etc. 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 All these things caused by aging, and so I think to take you know the same approach as doctors were doing at the beginning of the 20th century, and you know public health specialists trying to stamp out these infectious diseases. I think the next stage in trying to prevent human suffering is to go after these diseases of aging. It's interesting. I've spoken to two other uh, longevity experts on the show, Dr. David Sinclair and Dr. Gil Blander, and when I asked mm -hmm. them both why um, why they do what they do, they simply they all, they said to me quite bluntly. It's nothing deep, you know, there's, no, there's nothing to it on a spiritual level. I just want to live longer. And I'm sure 99% of the population do. But for you personally, how did your journey with this begin? And why did it interest you so much? I think I'm someone who's very driven by the sort of the numbers and the statistics. And you mentioned earlier that of the 150,000 people who die every day on earth, 100,000 of them die of aging. So more, it's actually more than 100,000. So it's more than two thirds of deaths are caused by this single process. So that's the first statistic. The second thing is that 
um, as I started reading more about the biology of aging, this was actually in sort of 2010, 2011 time, I was just coming to the end of a PhD in physics, actually, so not in biology. Um, but I just thought, you know, this is look at the scale of this problem. But as you start to look at the, um, the biology, you realize there's an awful lot we can do about it. There are experiments that showed how we can slow and reverse aging in the lab. And you just think if we can make these, you know, these cells, these mice, these worms, these various organisms in the lab live longer, healthier lives. And we know that aging is by far the biggest cause of death. And by extension, I think the biggest cause of suffering because of all the diseases that kill you, you know, those hundred thousand people who die a day of aging, most of them don't just, you know, stay fit and healthy, then fall over, you know, or perhaps die in their sleep one night. If you have a heart attack, that's normally going to be preceded by years or decades of slow decline of your cardiovascular system, which makes it harder to get about the house, harder to do stuff, harder to play with your grandkids. So it's all just this, this sort of tsunami of death and suffering um to put it in this you know to put it in it's the sort of morbid stark real light that it's in um and i just had to do something about that i thought if you've got the biological tools the biological capability this is what i want to do although the pessimists among us might think is you know too good to be true but you know human life expectancy has been rising like clockwork throughout human history do we have any reason to believe that that is gonna slow down or plateau at all I don't think we do. And the, um, the, the, there's been some research into this, looking back across um, the sort of last hundred years or so, and these predictions of when life expectancy might plateau. And what they research, what the researchers found was that every time one of these predictions was made, I think it was an average of five years until it was broken, which shows that you know, they're clearly being incredibly unambitious, all these people who predict um, what population life expectancy is going to do. It's not as though it got defeated 20 years later. It was, you know, in most cases happening a few years after the prediction was made. Because there is this natural pessimism. And I think there's a natural skepticism in scientists and demographers as well. So, you know, that they're, you can see why people try and be cautious in their predictions. But at the same time, there's not really a biological reason to expect that there is going to be some kind of ceiling, especially if we can you know, carry on, especially if we can start to treat the underlying processes of aging with medicine. Now, in the book, you talk about getting rid of the bad stuff. And some of the hallmarks you mention are senescent cells, amyloids. Can you explain to the, you know, the everyday person who's not into this type of research what those things are and why they're so detrimental. The example that I always use is senescent cells, actually, because they're, I think, they're, they're nice and easy to explain. Um, they're a fundamental cause of aging that causes a number of different diseases. And we've got a near-term idea of how we could do something about them. This is the sort of thing that, you know, could be in hospitals and clinics in the next five or 10 years easily. So let's uh, rewind back to the beginning. There are these things called senescent cells. An accumulation of these senescent cells is what's called a hallmark of aging. So that's a particular aspect of our biology that we know increases with age and we know that it causes a load of these other um, facets of the aging process. And that's everything from wrinkles and grey hair to frailty to muscle loss to cognitive decline to diseases like cancer and heart disease. Um, and these cells, they were first discovered in the 1960s. They were found by a scientist called Leonard Hayflick. He was watching cells divide in a dish. And he noticed that after about 50 divisions, those cells had just stopped dividing. And not only that, they looked weird under the microscope. So I'm not a microscopy expert by any means. But you can see, you know, even to the untrained eye, these cells, they're just bizarre shapes. They don't, they don't look anything like a sort of healthy, youthful uh, cell dividing away. And so these cells, they look like they're old. They look like they're weird. And they were christened senescent cells, which is just from the scientific word for old. And so that sort of begs the question, if these aged cells exist, could it be the aging of the cells in our bodies that causes our bodies as a whole to age? And the answer, it seems, is yes. Um, as in the intervening decades, we've done some research. And what we found is they do accumulate in people's bodies as they get older. 
And these cells, they're not just stopping dividing. They're not just sort of benign, sat there, not doing any harm. They actually emit a cocktail of toxic molecules that effectively accelerate the aging process. And so scientists thought, what could, what could we do? We could, you know, we could try getting rid of these cells. And in the last sort of 10 years, that experiment has been done in mice. Scientists managed to find some drugs that can kill these senescent cells, but leave the rest of the cells in a mouse's body intact. And so when they gave the mice these drugs, um, they actually managed to give them very late in life. So they gave them when the mice were 24 months old, which is about equivalent to 70 in human years, because obviously mice have much shorter lifespans than we do. And they made them live longer. They lived a few months longer. So that's you know, maybe a few years in human terms. But they weren't just hobbling along in ill health. They managed to live, make them live healthier as well. So they were, uh, they had fewer cataracts, they had less cancer, they had less uh, heart problems, they could run further and faster on a treadmill, little tiny mousy treadmill, and they even had better fur, which is something I think we can all aspire to in our older age. So clearly this is a sort of global reversal of so many aspects of the aging process, um, all caused by a single underlying hallmark. And the reason that I'm most excited about this is not only is it sort of easy to explain, not only have we shown it in mice, but there are actually trials happening in humans already. So this is something that we could see, uh, you know, potentially on the market in the not too distant future. Wow. Wow. So how realistic or how close are we to coming up, do you think, with, you, know, you mentioned a, f a few years, but to a treatment that can almost get rid of these uh, senescent cells? How realistic is that uh, when you mentioned coming on the market? I think it could happen within the next few years and I'm oh. you know, scientists are an absolute nightmare in terms of like trying to nail them down for any kind of time <laughs> scale for anything so you know you're not going to get a precise number in years and months out of me what's um what's interesting is i think these early treatments they're going to be used for specific diseases where we know that senescent cells are a problem so for example arthritis is something that's really driven by cellular senescence it's driven by a process called inflammation which is what's what these toxic molecules that the senescent cells emit go on to cause um, and there's also age-related blindness called uh, age-related macular degeneration. There's also lung fibrosis and senolytic drugs. These drugs that kill senescent cells are in trials for all of these conditions and more. And I think what we'll see is, you know, if, if these trials are safe, if they shows the drugs are effective, then hopefully we'll be seeing them used not just for people who are actually unwell, not people who have sort of the end stages of these diseases, but for people whose only disease, quote unquote, to go back to the, uh, the very first discussion is the fact they were born a long time ago. Whenever I mention um, aging on the social medias or the newsletter, one of the things, the words that comes back to me more than any from listeners is Alzheimer's. I think everyone is terrified of this thing. Now, what could you explain what is actually happening in the brain during that process? And I mean, what can we, how can we remain conscious of it? How can we, are there any preventative measures we could be taking on a daily basis? Alzheimer's is phenomenally complicated and there was a there's been a theory for a, a, a number of decades in fact that the primary driving force behind the dementia in your brain I mean the, so the end point is that your neurons start to die your brain cells start to die the real question that's still an outstanding question in the scientific community is what causes the cascade of events that ends with those brain cells dying and you know the connections between them being lost and all that sort of stuff which causes you to lose your memory you can lose all kinds of brain functions um, and a leading hypothesis for, the, for these last few decades has been what's called the amyloid hypothesis. You mentioned amyloids as one of these things that you want to try and remove from our aging bodies. And that's because there's a protein called beta amyloid that can build up in your brain. It can stick together into these sticky things called plaques. And these form, you know, they're, they're visible to the naked eye to, uh, in people who've got very advanced dementia. And as these plaques build up, they can basically strangle the brain cells and kill them. What's really fascinating is that that hypothesis has come under a lot of fire in recent years because um, there, we, we now have drugs that are very good at clearing this amyloid. 
but the problem is that although we can clear the amyloid you know you can you can do a scan and show that someone's brain has been had a huge amount of it removed it doesn't reverse the dementia and the problem might be that the, that, so the sort of last stand of this amyloid hypothesis is, is that we're intervening too late we're coming in at a point where the brain's already been strangled by the amyloid the cells are already dead so even if you take away sort of the root cause of it then you know the brain's already ruined so there's nothing you can do and so the um what's going to be the final test of this hypothesis is that they can give these anti-amyloid drugs to people who have an early onset form of the disease so that's a form of the disease that doesn't occur in your 70s or your 80s like it does in most people but one that can occur in your even as early as your 30s more commonly in your 50s due to a particular genetic problem that you've got that you know you're born with and so you can identify these people in advance by looking for those genes and then you can give them these treatments potentially years or decades before they would go on to develop alzheimer's and those trials should be reporting soon to find out whether you know giving these drugs preventatively is something that's powerful enough to um, to, to sort of reverse or you know block the course of this disease but there are also a load of other hypotheses. And I think there's some reason to be optimistic that treating these other kinds of aging are going to, um, tr sorry, treating these other underlying causes of aging, I should say, are going to have benefits on our brain health as well. So because this amyloid hypothesis has been under so much fire, because it's been so uncertain whether it's true or not, it's basically allowed a thousand other hypotheses to bloom. And one of them is that it's uh, related to inflammation. So perhaps getting rid of some of these senescent cells which drive that inflammation uh, could have a beneficial effect on the brain. There are even sort of wilder hypotheses that it might be related to bacteria or viruses, because sometimes inside these amyloid plaques, you find bacteria and viruses. So we're really not entirely certain what causes it, um, but there are ideas and there are treatments being developed and we're basically just gonna have to try things and see what works. In terms of prevention, it's, um, it's surprising to me, actually, it's something that's quite counterintuitive, is that you can get a great deal of benefit in terms of your cognitive health by doing a lot of, uh, you know what, what sounds like quite boring basic health advice so for example getting enough exercise you might think that exercise is only good for your heart or good for your muscles so you know it's good for your cardiovascular system it keeps you physically fit but it also has huge knock-on effects in other parts of your body and your brain is a really good example so you know keeping fit is actually a good way to stave off dementia and it's also a good way to stave off certain kinds of cancer so i think what you find something that's really excited me while writing the book there's a chapter on health advice and understanding the aging process really shows you that a lot of you know what you might ordinarily consider quite boring basic are you on you and heard it all before sort of health advice actually literally slows down the aging process and that's really compelled me to you know get out and do a few more runs than i would otherwise have done <laughs> no i love the i love the uh the boring health advice man I, that's something i definitely want to come on to later because i think it's a lot more um actionable for people i mean if someone's listening to this is actually stuff they can take away not just you know pray mm -hmm. that the scientists come up with a treatment if you know what i mean yeah now there was some there's a word you mentioned in the book that um grabbed my attention that's the microbiome um mm -hmm. On this show, we've we've is a friend of the show. He's come on a few times. Uh, Doctor Will Bolshevich, he specialises in gut health. Uh, he's known as the Gut Health MD, um, and we've explored the microbiome with him and how it affects you know general day to day health. But what do we know about the microbiome and can it affect the aging process at all? It really looks like it can. Um, the it's a really emerging field of science. So when I when I was structuring the book. The, the main structure is to look at these individual hallmarks of aging. So we've already talked about accumulation of senescent cells. I've got nine others in my book. And actually, um, that means, so that means I've got 10 in total, just to do a bit of simple maths for you. And um, it was actually based on a paper that was published in 2013 called The Hallmarks of Aging. Now, The Hallmarks of Aging only has nine hallmarks. And one of the reasons that I've got 10 is that I added one. And the one that I added was the microbiome. 
And the reason being that in the last few years, the amount of evidence about its impact on aging has just exploded. Um, and there are a few different ways that we can understand how it works. I think the most compelling is some experiments in organisms called killifish which are these uh, short-lived fish that are native to Africa. They live in these tiny ephemeral pools. So they're basically puddles, frankly. Um, and the fish, they have to, you know, be born, they have to grow up, they have to reproduce, they have to die. And they do all that over the timescale of just a few months. But what's interesting about them is because they're vertebrates, they've got their animals with a backbone like us, they've got quite a complicated gut microbiome that's similar to the one that you find in humans. But because they only live three or four months, you can obviously do those experiments on a much shorter timescale than you could if you were trying to do the same thing with humans. So what the scientists did was they, um, they did what's called a microbiome transplant i.e. they moved the microbiome from one fish to another. And the way that they did that was they got some older fish and they cleared out their whole microbiome with a really potent cocktail of antibiotics, which would just kill all the bacteria, all the organisms inside them. And then they allowed them to share their tank with uh, younger fish. And basically the fish eat, eat, eat each other's poo, which is, <laughs> which is uh, you know, quite delightful. But the, the end effect is they end up with a youthful microbiome. They end up with all the youthful bacteria that are found inside those younger fish. And what they found was that the fish lived longer. They lived longer in good health. And, um, you know, you obviously can't do like detailed studies into the heart health and whether they get cancer and all this sort of stuff with fish. The other thing they noticed was that they, they had what seemed to be less frailty because they dart around the tank more, which is a, you know, a behavior more normally associated with younger fish. So it really does seem as though the microbiome has a big effect on aging. And although we haven't totally nailed down exactly what that effect is and how we can improve it in humans just yet, there's a lot of really promising research. Mm. Now, if we talk about uh, looking after your microbiome, maintaining a healthy microbiome you mentioned and, and i think a lot of people's mind would go straight to probiotics pre prebiotics mm -hmm. how do they have an effect on the microbiome and how what are some good examples of maybe how to introduce them into your diet and you know your advice would be on because everyone would just go out they'd say i'll buy some i don't know what a brand is activia or something like that but what would you say is a um something actionable that our audience can take away today and start introducing these things into their diet do you know what? I think um, we're not quite at the position yet where we know exactly which bacteria and which pro, pro, you know, which pro and prebiotics. Mm. So probiotics are the organisms themselves and prebiotics are uh, nutrients that will feed those organisms. And you can also get something called a symbiotic, which combines the two into a single drink or a you know, biscuit. Or There are various different ways you can deliver these things. And there is research ongoing and I'm quite you know, sort of excited that in the next few years we'll have some actionable ideas of you know, things people can genuinely go away and take. But for the moment, there's a lot of uncertainty around this stuff. So if you do go and buy, you know, your Actimel or whatever it is from the supermarket and you drink it, it's very hard to know exactly how many bacteria are in those drinks. It's very hard to know how many of those bacteria survive the journey through your stomach because most of your microbiome lives in your intestines, which is the bit, you know, down here beyond your stomach. And your stomach is a very acidic environment. And so, you know, it's, it's quite difficult to know, you know, how many bacteria make it through that. And then is that enough bacteria to make a meaningful difference to your microbiome? We don't really know the answers to those questions at the moment. And like I say, I think we will in the next few years. So it's certainly something to keep an eye on. I think the best advice in terms of maintaining your microbiome as you age is actually probably to eat a, bit, a few more vegetables, like in, unless you're already vegetarian, having a more plant-based diet tends to it's effectively like prebiotics in that sense because you're giving your microbiome the, the range of sort of fibers and various different other chemicals inside the plants that are much more likely to stimulate it and if you have a very meat heavy diet it's known to have a negative effect on your microbiome so i think it is a bit of a shame that we can't give like more specific advice and again it sounds a bit generic but i really think that yeah introducing a bit more vegetable a few more vegetables into your diet are really going to pay dividends 
Yeah, I wish they put that on the bottle because uh, that's the magic of marketing. They make you think it's uh, the elixir of life. Yeah, yeah. They make it sound like it's a done deal. And I think, as I say, we all have some ideas and there, there might be some working probiotic drinks or evidence-based, I should say, probiotic drinks in the next few years. But as of right now, veggies. <laughs> Another word that crops up in the book, um, and I keep hearing it a lot on health-based podcasts lately, are telomeres. So could you explain to the audience what those are and why people with shorter ones seem to die sooner? That's something that you really often get asked if you tell people you're working on aging. They've often heard of telomeres. And the reason is there was a huge flurry of excitement around them in about the 1990s. And that sort of got tempered in the intervening time. But actually, and I was ready to write quite a sort of down chapter about that in the book. But actually, the more recent research has got me excited again. So let me sort of explain why that is. Um, inside your cells, as they divide, uh, every time a cell divides, it has to replicate all of its DNA. So it has to duplicate its genetic code. And your genetic code is split up into 46 individual chromosomes, 23 from your mum, 23 from your dad. And at each end of those two chromosomes, they've got two ends. There's a protective cap of DNA called the telomere. And the reason for that protective cap is to solve a rather ridiculous problem in cell biology which is that your DNA replication machinery can't make it all the way to the end of a piece of DNA. It ends up um, not quite replicating those last few letters, basically. And so that would mean if you didn't have your telomeres, then you'd end up starting to chop off important bits of DNA pretty rapidly. So your telomeres are basically there. They're a bunch of repeated nonsense. They're just the same six letters over and over and over again. And the idea is that if you lop a few of those off at the end of a cell division, it doesn't really matter because you've only cut off this sort of useless repeated information. And you haven't compromised your DNA. You haven't compromised any of the important genes that your cells need to survive. So, oh, sorry, that's my phone. So, um, where was I? Yeah. So, what happens is the um, as your cells divide, they lop off a little bit at the end of these telomeres, and that means that they shorten as you age because your cells divide constantly, trying to replace the other tissues in your body. You know, constantly trying to replace things like your guts, your skin, which are turning over all the time, and that means that as you age, they get shorter. And what studies have shown is it's not just a way of like measuring how old you are. It's also the case that people who've got shorter telomeres tend to die sooner. And we don't know exactly all of the mechanisms behind that yet. But what that means is that, um, you know, basically that you know, people get more heart disease. It can also cause more cancer. Um, and actually, it's one of the driving forces behind cellular senescence. So we now understand that experiment that was done all those years ago when they were looking at cells, when Len Hayflick was looking at his cells in a dish. We now understand the reason they stop dividing after about 50 divisions is basically because they run out of telomere. Mm. And so the exciting thing is that we can go in and potentially extend those telomeres and that would then defer some of these problems of aging and hopefully make people live longer. Wow. I was about to say is augmenting them a possibility. It is. Yeah. And I think the, so the, and I, I mentioned before, actually, I was going to explain why there was a lot of excitement in the nineties and sort of petered out a little bit. The reason was um, there's an enzyme called telomerase, which all of our cells have. And what that enzyme can do is extend those telomeres. It can add more copies of those repeats, repeated things onto the end of your telomeres and make them longer. And so scientists thought, oh, this is great. You know, we've got these things that get shorter with age. We've got an enzyme that can increase how long they are. Let's add some of that enzyme back into our cells and make, you know, more telomerase, make longer telomeres, and let's see if the animals live longer. And what they found was they added extra an extra copy of the telomerase gene into mice. And those mice, they they just got absolutely terrible loads of cancer. The reason being that a cancer, you know, what fundamentally cancer is, is a cell that just divides and divides and divides and divides, and it keeps on dividing, and that effectively infinite division allows it to form a tumor and if that tumor gets big enough it can metastasize it can travel around your body and that's how cancer goes on to kill you so 
um, having active telomerase is something that cancers, it's sort of pre-ticking a box on ca cancer's list. There are various things that have to go wrong in your cells in order for cancer to work, to happen. And telomerase activating it is, is one of them. You have to find a way to extend your telomeres. And the way most cancers do that is to activate telomerase. So these poor mice, they effectively had that pre-ticked box. And so they are more likely to go on to develop cancers. And so everyone went, you know, we went from amazing immortality enzyme to terrible cancer-causing enzyme over the course of a few years as those studies were done. Um, but what's quite exciting is we've, we've since done more subtle experiments where we've managed to extend telomeres without increasing the cancer risk. And I think the key to this is to extend them in a way that doesn't leave the telomerase on all the time. So rather than sticking in this telomerase, which can help cancer, you stick a bit of telomerase in, but you do so in such a way as it's only activated temporarily. And that allows the telomeres to be built up to a slightly longer length and gain some of the health benefits. But then when it's finished with, that telomerase basically goes away. And that means that you don't have this sort of lingering cancer risk in the same way. And having done these experiments on mice, they can make them live longer. They've, um, they've tried an experiment where they've used this sort of temporary telomerase in mice that are very, very likely to get cancer. So they've got a, a genetic mutation that makes them much more likely to get cancer. And adding this telomerase doesn't make the cancer any more likely. So it looks as though they've managed to come up with a way to extend our telomeres without increasing our cancer risk. And if we can show that, that translates to humans, that's something we could think about applying to ourselves. Another big buzzword that I, that I hear everywhere on, on um, sort of health uh, podcasts and doctors is mitochondria. And mm -hmm. why is the decline of it so detrimental? And is there anything we can do to sort of intervene and slow that process down? Mitochondria are often described as the powerhouse of the cell. It's a bit of a cliche. The reason being that they're the part of our cells. There are sort of hundreds to thousands of them inside most cells in your body. And what they do is they generate energy. They, they, they effectively, you know, turn our food into the energy that our cells then use to do various different things. And that can be, you know, movement for muscle cells or firing nerve impulses if it's cells inside your brain or whatever it is the cell needs to be doing. So obviously they're crucial to our biology because they're the way that we generate our energy. They're the way that we, you know, basically they keep us alive. And the problem is that as we get older, they decline in function. And that obviously you know, has obvious negative consequences. And there are various things we can do. We're not exactly sure which one of them is going to work yet. Um, I think one of the most exciting in the short term is something called mitochondrially targeted antioxidants. So a lot of your listeners might have heard of antioxidants. They're a really big thing, particularly in the 90s. But actually quite a lot of people still do take vitamin pills basically for their antioxidant properties. And the reason for that is that mitochondria, when they generate their energy, um, the reactions which generate energy obviously involve a lot of energy like by default that means they have to have very reactive chemicals things like oxygen things like sugar they're very reactive chemicals in our bodies and sometimes the mitochondria will be passing um the chemical you know basically doing the chemistry that allows them to generate this energy and they'll fumble a bit of the chemistry and that can generate something called a free radical which is a chemical that is voracious it'll just like run around uh, the inside of your cell damaging any molecule that it comes into contact with and the idea is that an antioxidant is something that can soak up those free radicals. It can stop them doing that damage. And so there was a, something called the mitochondrial free radical theory of aging said that the damage caused by these free radicals is ultimately what caused the aging process. And so if that is the case, then what you should find is that if you give people antioxidants, that soaks up those free radicals, slows down that damage and potentially slows the whole aging process down. Now, unfortunately, that turned out to be a massive oversimplification of the, of the of the problem, basically, because I mean, and perhaps with hindsight, it shouldn't have been that surprising because mitochondria have been a fundamental feature of life for you know, probably about a billion years or maybe a bit longer. So an incredibly long time. And that means that evolution has had a huge amount of time to come to terms with the fact that we have free radicals. 
And in fact, not only has it come to terms with that fact, they're used for various processes inside our cells. So they're sometimes used as signals to send messages from one part of a cell to the other. I think the most amazing use for free radicals that I've come across is they're used by our immune system. Our immune cells generate loads and loads of free radicals on purpose and use them to fight bacteria. So, you know, evolution has gone, or there are these really like highly reactive chemicals. They're produced as a sort of natural byproduct of being alive. I can't just sit by and let these do their damage i'm going to have to not only come up with ways to mitigate them but also come up with ways to use them so they're clearly really important molecules uh, or rather really important chemistry and what that means is that if you take an antioxidant um normally that you know say that reduces the number of free radicals you have slightly you might find that your body actually reduces its own internal antioxidant defenses in order to allow some more to be produced or you might find it produces some more again to try and compensate and if you take a big enough dose of antioxidants you might find that you dampen down the levels of free radicals to levels that are lower than are optimal so it might even reduce your lifespan so it's got this incredibly complicated effect but the one place that it does seem to be beneficial to have antioxidants is if you target them specifically to the mitochondria. So these mitochondrially targeted antioxidants have a special chemical label attached to them, which causes them to be preferentially um, taken by the mitochondria. And that means effectively you stop the free radicals where they, ha where they happen. And it's thought that because the mitochondria are ground zero, they're somewhere that generates a huge amount of the free radicals that are present in the cell. Perhaps they're also the place where the most damage occurs. And so if you have a free radical uh, neutralizer that's localized specifically there, maybe it can improve our health in ways that uh, an antioxidant that just targets the whole of the cell and the whole of your body can't. And actually the evidence from experiments in mice is that it does benefit their health and it does extend their lifespan in a way that just general antioxidant treatment simply doesn't. One of the big things that when you see <clears throat> longevity experts or doctors on podcasts or YouTube channels, I think the most asked question and the most clickable video there could be is longevity experts daily supplement list. Everyone's going to click on that. But in the book, you mentioned almost don't bother with supplements. Yeah, I, I, I don't take any supplements myself. Um, I think the evidence is that if you look at the biggest, best trials we've got, so the, what are called systematic reviews, which draw together all of the different evidence on all of the different vitamin supplements there are, you know, not just looking at a single individual trial that might be sponsored by a company, might only have 20 people involved. They pull together these trials with hundreds of thousands of people in total when you aggregate all the statistics together. And what they find is that most antioxidants or most vitamin pills just don't do anything. And some of them can even reduce your lifespan. So it just, you know, it makes me think, you know, these sound like um, positive things. Vitamin sounds like something healthy, something you find in fruit and veg. And it's something actually that a huge number of people do. I think over half of Americans take vitamin supplements on a regular basis. But the fact is the evidence just isn't there. See, I have, uh, I have the urge to go into my cupboards and throw my vitamin D tablets in the bin now. So actually, I should say vitamin D is the one thing that I'm taking at the moment because the oh. benefits of it on lifespan are fairly contested and it's not very certain. There's the health advice at the moment is that people who live in sort of northerly latitudes, as we both do, mm. um, who aren't getting enough sun in the winter should be thinking about having a vitamin D supplement. But the thing that pushed me over the edge, even though they don't extend lifespan, is this idea that it might impact on respiratory diseases and therefore might be slightly preventative of coronavirus. Now, the evidence, I should emphasize, really isn't there in terms of, you know, demonstrating that it protects you or demonstrating it'll make the disease any less bad. But the fact is, I think vitamin D supplements aren't harmful. 
And so even though I think it's perhaps even unlikely they'll make any difference, I'm willing to take the gamble of anything that will get me a slightly reduced, uh, you know, probability of having COVID. Having COVID. <laughs> yeah, man. I mean, I, I I have quite a few friends who have, um, I think they've probably watched one too many episodes of the Joe Rogan experience and they have these <laughs> um, tubs with Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and it's all their vitamins for the day. And there's all these supplements I've never even heard of. And I remember, you know, a few weeks back, I was thinking to myself, Maybe I should get onto this. Maybe I should look and ask some questions. But after reading your book now, I think it's uh, safer just not to bother than to, to jump in unknowingly. Wouldn't you say so? I think so. And I think the fact is that we're going to know a lot more about this stuff over the next few years in terms of the longevity, sort of not just the supplements, but the actual medicine. We're going to have trials where we can say, oh, you know, this particular senolytic is useful or there's a drug called metformin that's being tried out for anti-aging. And some people do take that speculatively, but we're, we're just going to know the answer in five years time for that particular drug. Um, and in terms of the vitamins and stuff, and like even a lot of the dietary advice, I think we're probably going to have cured aging before we've worked it out. Because, you know, if you've got your tubs with Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, etc. written on them, it's just imagine the number of different permutations there are, like whether you had your Tuesday tub on Monday or like whether you there's, there's this idea of intermittent fasting or you only eat every other day or like time restricted feeding where you only eat for certain periods of time in the day and that sort of stuff. There are just so many variations of which vitamins you have when or what food you eat when. I, I don't think we're ever going to be able to do a study, particularly in humans, who obviously we live a long time and it'll be frankly unethical to like exactly prescribe what we ate for decades. So I think we're going to have sorted out aging. You know, I think we're going to have cured all diseases before we fully understand nutrition. <laughs> <laughs> I want to jump in. You mentioned it might be some of the boring stuff. I find it fun. I want to jump into some of that. And you make uh, some lifestyle factors and you, you make a reference in the book um, I'm a big Agatha Christie fan. You mentioned the murder on the Orient Express um, mm. example in which it's not just one factor that's responsible. So I want to go through a few with you now. The first one that sort of caught my eye, and obviously I've listened to a lot of uh, podcasts on health. I've, you know, I've, I've interviewed longevity experts. I've never once heard anyone mention the relationship between teeth and <laughs> heart disease. So and I imagine our listeners right now are probably taken back a bit by that. What is that relationship between tooth decay and heart disease? I can't fathom that. that. Yeah, that was one that surprised me as well. And I think it's um, it's really fascinating because as you understand more about the biology of aging, it can both illuminate which health advice is useful and which is just bunk, but it can also find some of these really weird examples. And I think this is probably one of the strangest ones. So if you go back to the 1990s, this is when this relationship was first observed. And they noticed that people who had uh, better oral hygiene, you know, cleaner teeth, better gums, had less heart disease. And that sounds immediately like one of these examples where sci scientists say correlation doesn't equal causation. And what that means is that you find two things that happen at the same time. They happen together, but they're not actually associated. It's not that one causes the other. Um, so to give the example, let's, let's go through the example in terms of tooth decay and heart disease. You could imagine maybe people who aren't aren't so well off they haven't got as much time to look after their health they haven't got as much money to spend on nice food they haven't got as much money to spend on dental bills or toothpaste or you know the time to you know brush their teeth because they're so busy trying to you know sort themselves out then that means they're simultaneously going to have worse oral health and worse heart health for for you know similar kinds of reasons but neither one is causing the other so that was sort of the supposition but as we've learned more about this and done more studies there does seem to be a probably a genuine connection here and the connection is thought to be through inflammation 
So this process of inflammation, it's the natural process by which your body responds to threats. And that could be an infectious disease or it could be an injury. And what it basically means is that your cells give out molecules and they say, you know, it's sort of like a 999 call. They're basically calling in the immune system to come and help out, come and clear out whatever the threat is to come and start the wound healing process or whatever that might be. And in youth, that process is acute. It happens very suddenly. It happens for a short, defined period of time. Your immune system comes in, clears up the mess and then clears off. But as you get older, you enter a state called chronic inflammation. So it's sort of a constant low level state of alert throughout your body. And that basically accelerates the aging process. So if you think about what's going on in your mouth when you've got tooth decay or when you've got gum disease, as you know, like these things tend to progress. Your immune system can never quite clear that infection. And what that means is there's constantly a skirmish going on in your teeth and in your gums. And then that means effectively chronic inflammation. That's exactly what I was just describing. So that low level of inflammation can accelerate all kinds of different diseases of aging. And heart disease is a really good example. We even think there might be a connection to dementia because dementia not only is that driven by inflammation, but also if you look in, as I said, if you look inside some of these plaques, you find bacteria, you find viruses. And one of the types of bacteria you find are the bacteria that are associated with gum disease. So it's not a dead certain thing. That could be another case where correlation doesn't equal causation, but equally it's, certainly plausible that they're at least partially a driving factor behind the disease so while like the jury is still a little bit out i'm happy to brush my teeth just on the off chance even if there's only even if there's only a chance it's going to be a benefit to my aging i was going to say i'm not taking the risk i'm flossing tonight um yeah <laughs> we mentioned uh vitamin d and um i think it was when we had dr andrew huberman on he talked about how he likes to have a positive relationship with the sun he likes to get his sunlight in um, obviously that's difficult for me and you, as we mentioned, but you're, you hear these two arguments you hear a lot of people say, go out, get sun. It's good for you. Other people, you don't want to spend too much time in the sun. What is the optimum relationship with sunlight as far as you're concerned? Do you know what? I really don't know. I Because the, the sort of two factors that pull in opposite directions are we clearly do need at least some vitamin D. That's, you know, that's unambiguous. And the way that we get that primarily is through exposure to the sun. You can get it through your diet. But honestly, you know, unless you're eating really particular things specifically chosen to make sure you're maximizing your vitamin D intake, you're never going to be able to get enough that way. So the way that most people get enough is this classic recommendation of 10 to 15 minutes of, you know, bare arms in the midday sun sort of thing. And then perhaps reduce that a bit in the summer when the sun's brighter. But then pulling on the other side of that equation is the fact that we know that the UV and sunlight, the very same sort of light that causes the vitamin D to be generated, can go in and it can smash apart the molecules inside your cells. So it can damage your DNA, it can damage the collagen that holds your skin together. Um, and so it accelerates skin aging. And worst of all, it accelerates the progression towards skin cancer. Um, sun exposed skin is some of the most heavily mutated skin, uh, sorry, some of the most heavily mutated tissue in your whole body. So if you look at the number of mutations that are in an average skin cell, I think it's about 10 times the number that you find in most other cells in your body. And that's just because it's been exposed to the sun, that UV radiation has gone in, it's caused uh, all kinds of damage, it's caused free radicals to be generated actually, and that can damage your DNA as well. So I really haven't been able to work out the answer to this. It's something I've really been scratching my head about because I certainly it's encouraged me you know, that, that knowledge about the DNA damage and the mutations has really encouraged me to put more sun cream on and be really careful about not getting sunburnt because that's something that can predispose you to skin cancer. But equally, you know, do you want to be putting on your factor 50 every day of the year and never getting a single drop of vitamin D? You could say the best way to do it is to just constantly sun cream it up, but then make sure that you get your vitamin D through supplementation. But I just think that the evidence isn't there. We haven't got the trials. There's some observational evidence um, that says that people who get more sun exposure tend to be healthier. 
but that's just riddled with the potential for these correlations and causation type issues because you know the sort of people who get a lot of sun exposure they're probably getting a lot of time outside they're exercising they're sunbathing you know they're having a relaxing time their lives are you know they've got more free time in their lives so there are all kinds of different effects that could be going on and until we can do some massive randomized trial where we you know lock people indoors with their vitamin d supplements or cover them in sun cream all the time for 10 years and then do the opposite to another load of people I just don't think we're ever going to be able to answer this question. So it's going to be, it's, it's one of these things where it's, uh, there must be an answer and it's something so basic. It feels like almost alluring. There's so, there must be something out there that we can do that we can optimize our health with. But honestly, I think we're, we're just not going to, again, it's going to be one of those things that we don't know until we've already cured, cured aging and cured all diseases. <laughs> <laughs> um, one thing I'd love to get your opinion on now. Um, I already mentioned him earlier, Dr. Will Bolshevitz. He talks with us quite a lot about meat and red meat in particular he's really not a mm. fan of um and then we spoke to um on the opposite side of that spectrum we spoke to dr sean baker um the head honcho of the carnivore diet um mm. now him and dr bolshevich have quite a bit of a rivalry online um uh, dr baker is always you know um, maybe throwing some insults, Dr. Bolshevich's way um, over this discussion of meat. Now we had Sean Baker on, but I personally felt that I, in all good conscience, couldn't release that episode, and I didn't. It's actually in the it's in the ether somewhere. It's been deleted <laughs> because I didn't feel as if there was enough science behind what they were saying. There's not been any proper trials done on you know in support of the carnivore diet and you know what i hear from i've heard from dr bolshevich i've heard from dr uh, michael greger dr neil barnard they've all given the case against red meat and it sounds a bit more plausible to me what is where do you weigh in on the on the red meat debate i think by and large almost all of us could benefit from having a bit less meat in our diets and there's there's no slam dunk evidence on this i think you're right to say that you know the trials are really really hard if you do observational studies again they're mired with confounders because if you look at like the sort of people who are vegetarian probably tend to be wealthy and more affluent they probably tend to like look after their health in other ways because they're quite health conscious people that's why they're veggie um so again it's just really really hard to tease out like if they do live longer is it because of all these other factors or is it because they eat less meat the things that compel me are the are therefore the sort of um the, the almost theoretical arguments as to why eating more vegetables might be good for you one of them we've already mentioned is that vegetables tend to improve your microbiome so i'm you know going to take that one um another argument which is really interesting to me is um so we're gonna have to rewind a little bit here back to the 1930s um the first convincing evidence that you could slow the aging process down in my opinion was through something called dietary restriction sometimes known as calorie restriction and there was a scientist called Clive Mackay who was doing some experiments in rats. And he showed that if you feed rats substantially less, and we're not just talking about, you know, having a bit of a diet, we're talking about 40% less food. So you're going to be hungry all the time. Um, if you feed rats that much less, they lived about half as long again. And they didn't just live half as long again, you know, in geriatric ill health, unable to even muster the energy to die after all their other previous rat counterparts had, had copped it. What they did was they they lived longer in good health. They when they did autopsies of the rats after they died, you know, eventually, what they found was the inside of those rats looked very similar to the inside of um, rats who'd been eating the full amount of food, but they'd obviously just died, you know, hundreds and hundreds of days before. So, 
that has obviously spurred a huge amount of additional research looking at you know can we do dietary restriction in other organisms other than just rats and it appears to be quite generally applicable but again it's really hard to do these studies in humans because you have to do them for so long and it's really difficult because it's not like a rat where you can just restrict how much it eats you know these people are hungry all the time so it's a hugely hugely challenging thing to do however sort of in amongst all this research there are still there are other question marks over what exactly it is you're restricting so throughout my book, I call it dietary restriction. Um, and the reason for that is it's, it's a bit pedantic. Originally, as I said, it was called calorie restriction. But actually, it's become much less certain whether restricting the calories themselves is what it is that causes you to live longer. And it might be that it's restricting the amount of protein. That's one possible argument. Or it might even be that it's restricting the amount of amino acids. And that's the, um, the building blocks of protein. So it might be that there are certain amino acids. If you just restrict that one building block, then you can extend your lifespan without having to like fully restrict your entire diet or massively reduce the amount of calories you take in. And some of the amino acids, which seem to uh, benefit lifespan by reducing them, are the ones that are primarily found in meat. And so the argument is that by being a vegetarian or by increasing the amount of you know, vegetable matter in your diet, you're sort of accidentally almost reducing the amount of these, some of these amino acids. And so you're dietary restricting yourself through the back door without having to eat much less food. So again, it's a sort of theoretical argument. There's not a huge amount of conclusive you know, study showing that this is definitely the case, but it just suggests there are various different ways that a vegetarian diet could extend your lifespan, could make you healthier. And it just seems the way, you know, all of this evidence tends to point towards vegetables rather than towards meat. That's not to say there's never a benefit of meat. It's not to say that a little, little bit of meat is going to kill you. But equally, the evidence all seems to be pointing much more heavily toward the direction of vegetables than toward the direction of meat. Mm. One thing that is growing in popularity lately is fasting. And I, I've heard a lot about it. And a, and a lot of people say that by fasting, you're turning on these uh, three um, uh, defenses of the body, turning these switches on and on, on and off can help longevity. Is there any credibility in that? There, are, there might be. It's again, these studies are really hard to do in humans, but it seems that in mice and other, you know, other animals, there's definitely some benefit to fasting. They do live longer. And the question is, because you know, this 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 effect dietary restriction, as I mentioned, is a really robust effect. We've shown it in mice. We've shown it in worms. We've shown it in flies. We've shown it in dogs. We've shown it in like low. We might it might work in monkeys. That's quite a long, complicated story. But you know, basically, it works in this huge range of animals, and not just animals. Sing, you know, yeast, single cells. So from right across the kingdom of life, we've shown that dietary restriction seems to work. And the idea behind these uh, fasting uh, approaches is that rather than eating less all the time and being hungry all the time, if you just eat every other day, that's something that's going to be easier to stick to. Um, it, I, but the real problem, again, is just like coming up with the evidence in humans. Um, and I, I, just from a practical standpoint, I've tried fasting and I'm just not sure I can do it. Like I, going a whole 24 hours without food is really challenging. I, the one thing I did manage to stick to was time-restricted feeding which you might have heard of, which is this idea of only eating for an eight hour window or a, it, it really varies. Some people are like six hours, some people are like 12 hours, but eating for a window in the day. Um, and so it's actually quite an easy thing to do. So, you know, imagine you skip breakfast and eat your first meal at noon, have, have basically sort of brunch at 12 o'clock in the, in the afternoon. And then you've got to eat all your food and make sure you're finished by 8 p.m. That's not that hard. Like that's certainly something that's doable. I, you know, I, I used to skip breakfast when I was a bit younger anyway, so it's not really that much of a leap. But then literally the week I started doing this, the best study so far, I think, that looked into this, um, trying to work out whether it had any health benefits, 
came out negative. They, they tried it on, a, I think it was about 100 subjects, and they found that actually it didn't seem to make any difference at all. They didn't lose any weight. They didn't seem to be any metabolically healthier. So it just sort of collapsed under the weight of study. And that, that is only one study. You shouldn't write the whole thing off because one study's come out negative. Like I said, the sort of gold standard is a systematic review where you've got loads of different studies from different angles and different populations all weighed together. But I just think this stuff, it's so, it's like trying to catch smoke. It's exactly the same idea where you're just like well, there's, there's an answer here there's there's definitely an optimal diet out there but it's just so difficult to find out what it actually is and put it into practice i spoke earlier this week to uh the ufc hall of famer george st pierre um he came on the podcast and we were, he was talking a lot about he's a very health conscious guy and he was saying that for him the one thing that's almost transformed his quality of life is doubling down on sleep and sleep quality what do we know? And I'm a big fan of the work of Matthew Walker. Uh, he wrote the book, Why We Sleep. If anyone mm. wants to scare themselves straight, I recommend reading that. It's quite a few horror stories in there. Um, but what do we know about the link between sleep and longevity? Again, it's one of those things where it's not as much as you'd like, because the, the perfect study would be to force a load of people to sleep four hours a night, force a load of people to sleep eight hours a night, force a load of people to sleep 12 hours a night, watch them for 20 years and see who dies first. And the fact is, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's impractical, it's unethical. So we haven't done that experiment. Um, the observational studies where you just ask people how much they sleep and then look at what happens to them from a health point of view seem to suggest that the best amount of sleep to get is somewhere in the region of seven to eight hours. And the reason for that is that um, if you sleep longer than that, it seems to be bad for your health. And if you sleep shorter than that, it seems to be bad for your health. The, the question is like, what's the fundamental mechanism? What's going on inside that? And the other question, Again, as we've we've discussed a few times already, is it is it correlation or is it causation? So someone who sleeps 10 hours a night, are they doing that uh, because they want to? Or are they doing that because they've got some underlying health condition that means they need that extra sleep? Someone who sleeps four hours a night, are they doing that because they want to, because that's natural, because they wake up feeling refreshed? Or is it because they've got a stressful job, a stressful life, which means that they're you know having to cut back on sleep to try and you know fit everything into the day? So it's really, really difficult to get the data on this. Um, the things again that sort of compel me towards it, it's similar to the uh, to whether or not you should eat vegetables. You think we don't understand exactly what the so what the correct answer is. But we can look at mechanisms by which sleep could improve your um, health. And one really compelling argument, actually, to go back to dementia, is that while we sleep, our brains use that opportunity to clear out junk. And there is very good evidence for this that you know while we sleep there's fluid moving around inside our brains that's clearing out the junk from the day and sort of refreshing all of what's going on in there so given that we think that um one of the and one of the things in fact that is cleared out is this out is the amyloid that predisposes people to alzheimer's so you know it's it's not a it's, it's not necessarily the case that exactly this amount of sleep is going to prevent alzheimer's but it certainly looks like getting a good night's shut eye is going to help clear out all those toxins from your brain so again and on the side of caution, I'm aiming for seven to eight hours. Great. So we've talked a lot about these lifestyle factors. If you could issue just one challenge to our audience uh, for this week, uh, maybe something they could be a bit more conscious of. Maybe it is getting their eight hours of sleep in. Maybe it is um, looking at their exercise. What is one challenge that you would like our audience to undertake for this week? Do you know what? This is a bit of an unusual one, and um, but I'm going to go for it anyway. I think if you're already following a lot of sort of basic health advice, you're basically in good health. If you're not already really old, the single greatest determinant of how long you live 
is going to be progress in biogerontology. It's progress in the biology of aging. And so actually, I think the best health advice for all of us is to get the word out there about this amazing science is to tell your friends it's to tell your family maybe write to your mp even if you're feeling particularly enthusiastic because the fact is the the potential benefits of anti-aging medicine as opposed to health advice um, are going to be much much bigger in the longer term and in fact i think you know a lot of these benefits could be realized in the lifetimes of people alive today so i think you know although you can you can try and make differences in your lifestyle the single most important thing is that more people understand the benefits of medicine that tackles the aging process medicine that can push all these diseases for us further and further back into the future so it's a bit of a weird one as a new year's resolution or it's a bit of a weird one as a you know bit of health advice to follow but i honestly think that's where we're going to have the biggest impact in the long term i love it and one of the ways to do that is spread the word about this book your it book, certainly your is. It's, 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 almost, it's almost a shame it sounds like a bit of a plug but that is it does sound like a plug i promise you we didn't pre-plan that one <laughs> that just came naturally so i thought you know what it's a good chance to uh to wrap it up perfectly there so while we're on the subject where can everyone watching listening uh find out more about the book yourself maybe buy a copy so if you want to buy a copy of the book, you can go to ageless.link and you'll find loads of different ways that you can buy it. Obviously, you can get it on any way you get your books. Um, if you want to find out a bit more about that, I've also got a YouTube channel where I've uploaded a couple of videos about aging and I've got more in the works, which is at youtube.com slash Dr. Andrew Steele. That's D-R Andrew Steele, all one word. Um, and I'm on Twitter. I'm at Stato. So if you want to follow the you know all the latest updates, that'll be there as well. Perfect. My last question for you is what's next for you? You obviously have got this book come out. Obviously you're focused on the launch. Now you mentioned your YouTube channel. What's the next big project for Andrew Steele? It's a great question. I'm trying to work it out to be perfectly honest with you. I think I'm going to ride the wave of this book for a bit, try and make a few more videos, which is something I'd really been hoping I'd be able to do more during the writing process. But it turns out writing a book takes a really long time. Who knew? So I'm just going to try and focus on a few of those things and just see if I can spread the word. Cause honestly, I think you know a lot of authors say that their book topic is really really important and partly it's to sell books but the reason that i went into this is because i really deeply care about getting the word out about this stuff i want biologists to know i want members of the public to know i want you know mps and policymakers to know so i'm just really going to be trying to get the word out there as best i can i love it and what i what i love about your book as well there's an old saying that if you tell people that their bad habits are good for them you'll sell a lot of books you're doing the opposite you're telling them that their bad habits are bad for them and uh, i do hope you sell a lot of books i hope so, um, i hope you sell some books anyway <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for your time today man i've uh, i've really enjoyed it thanks very much for having me it's been a pleasure so i want to thank you for joining me again on another Monday on the Freedom Pact podcast. We'll be back on Friday where Joe will be bringing you another amazing conversation. I hope to see you there. I'll be tuning in. Uh, until then, if you want more from us, please visit our YouTube channel, youtube.com forward slash Freedom Pact, where all these conversations are uploaded in video format as well as clips at the moment, we're releasing a video every single day. So not only do you get the full episodes of the podcast, but you get the best bits from all of our conversations that are uploaded in four to eight minute clips. So go and check us out there. Please drop us a subscribe. Um, that is the best way you can support the podcast. Um, if you can't do that, please if you're listening on iTunes, give us a five-star rating and a written review. Let us know what you think. 
And if you have any uh, suggestions, any guest recommendations, any feedback, or you just want to get in touch, uh, please drop us a message on Instagram. You can connect via Freedom Pact. That is our username. Or drop us an email at freedompact at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening.